going to have a blast today. Or you might not. Um, this might be either your favorite sermon or your least favorite sermon. That's kind of half the extremes that we're dealing with today. You might be glad that your husband's here to hear this. Or you might be glad that your uh, wife's here to hear this. Or you might wish that someone else was here to hear this because you don't need to hear it. But just in case, you're here and I'm here, so we're going to make it work uh, for the next 30 minutes or so. Um, but again, this might be your favorite. Some preachers might get fired for saying the stuff that I'm going to say this morning, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> maybe I would care later. I might want to follow that. Um, I do care. I care about y'all. That's why I'm doing this. That's why we're, why we're talking about the red letters, right? Um, because we believe, I believe, I think you believe that the red letters are so important that they're worth studying. And even more than that, they're worth obeying. Um, and they wouldn't have been recorded in history, and they wouldn't have been, uh, uh, you know, throughout history, over and over again, against all the odds, resurfaced to a place of prominence. Um, but the words of Jesus, of course, the words of the man who said, I'm going to die and raise again, and I'll prove it, and he did. And that's why we revere his words so much, because he truly is the resurrected and eternal Savior. So here's the thing that we're going to do today. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 6. Um, we're going to be reading from that towards the middle or end of our message. I've got some other scripture to throw on the screen for Matthew, but I did want to flip it around. And I felt like this was the most important text for us to have our eyes on. Um, so I wanted y'all to have to look at this, and you can read ahead if you want to. Um, but uh, I would rather you not, just so it's more uh, impactful when I say look down at your Bible. So you can set it to the side and look at the screen if you want to for a little bit. Or look at me. I'm not that awful to look at all the time. You can ask Lindsay. Um, but sometimes even she has to turn away, right? Um, but um, I love y'all. Uh, if you got a Bible, Matthew 6, we'll be looking at that in a minute. But we've been studying the red letters, of course, and we've learned a lot about uh, a lot from the red letters. And we've learned a little bit about living better, about how to be better, about how to do better. And last week we learned how to lead better, not just the next generation, but just lead better in general as God has made us um, these figures in our world that are to point to and to lead people to uh, the kingdom of God. And, and today is our next to last conversation about red letters, but maybe it's the most valuable, emphasis on value, the most valuable of them all. And particularly of note because there are more red letters about today's subject than any other. And maybe you know where this is going, maybe you don't know. The title is meant to be a little bit ambiguous, but if you remember... This all got started. Jesus came on the scene in some of the initial red letters that he spoke, some of the initial words that he spoke. He came on the scene and he was preaching that people ought to be ready or to get ready or to plan for, prepare for what God was about to do. And Jesus introduced his mission or his movement like this. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said to them that were listening, follow me. So he came on the scene. He said, hey, y'all should listen to me. Actually, God from heaven said, listen to this guy. He's important. And then Jesus said, okay, thank you for the introduction, Father. Yes, you should listen to me. And my first commandment is that you should repent. You should turn from any other direction that you're going towards, any other road that you're walking down, any other lifestyle you subscribe to. You should listen to me. You should turn away from any other source, any other hope, any other faith. And you should put your eyes on me. And follow me, because I am ushering in the kingdom of God. I am ushering in a movement that's going to be so important, it will last longer than you will. And if you miss out on this, you might miss out on everything. I mean, it's a pretty big thing, a pretty big way to start a movement by saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven is moving in. I mean, that's one way to get people's attention, right? The kingdom of heaven is moving in. But following Jesus wouldn't be easy. It wouldn't come natural 
It would require a decision, a conclusion being made. It would require a transfer of trust. And that's what repent means. Repent means turning from one to another. It means uh, meaning counting the cost, weighing the options, and declaring whatever it costs me, wherever it leads me, whatever it takes or requires of me, I'll do it. And we just sang those words, a form of them, but we gather from Jesus' words from the very beginning, listening and turning and following are so important, so vital to knowing who God is from, from making it anywhere in this life. And, 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 and the reason why and what we've learned so far is Jesus, only Jesus, can prepare us for God's kingdom. That's a pretty big statement to make, right? And you people say, well, that's narrow. That's just how, you know, are you sure? How can you be sure? But we believe, Christians, we have put everything on Jesus, haven't we? And we confidently confess only Jesus can prepare us for the kingdom of God. Now, God's kingdom can mean and should make us think of a number of different things, not just heaven when we die, but also God's activity here on earth. That God's kingdom is wherever he is present, wherever he is active, wherever he is involved. And we believe he is not just involved in heaven, but he is active in our world today. And, if, and here's the thing. If we want, if we want to be prepared for God's intended activity today, tomorrow, and forever, we must follow Jesus. Now, of course, you want to be a part of what God is intending to do. What You want to be a part of his activity. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of Jesus' activity on earth, right? When we know who he is and we learn who he is, why would we ever say, I don't want anything to do with that? But we have learned and we have concluded that if we want to be a part of God's activity, if we want to be ready and prepared for it, we must pay attention to the red letters. But God's kingdom isn't just a vague, scattered reference to what might happen today or what could happen tomorrow or what might happen in the future when we die. Jesus believed and taught and modeled that there was a definite through line. There was a definite connection with our lives here and our lives there. Jesus taught that our todays and our tomorrows have an impact on our forevers. Jesus believed, and we believe, and Christians, we all have kind of, I think this is a given for most Christians, we believe that there is a connection between now and next. What now impacts what happens and what comes next. Now, obviously, we believe that salvation is free. It is found in, in, in and through Christ alone. But that doesn't write the rest of our time on earth off as unimportant and unnecessary. All the more, it makes it very necessary. And Jesus taught more about this subject that we're getting ready to enter into. He dealt with this idea... This idea of making this connection between now and next, Jesus taught so much on how our earthly lives impact our eternal lives. And if there is a connection, isn't that a question that you want to ask every day? And if there is some connection, if there is some through line, if there is some you know, connection between now and next, activity today, tomorrow, and forever, don't you want to know? Don't you think we should ask that question more often than not? Jesus taught that we ought to always be considering how we are planning for and preparing for eternity. And Christians, we ought to plan better than anybody else. In fact, we reference the parable, this parable a lot, but the last parable Jesus ever preached, which must have been important for him to make this one his last, the final sermon pulled together a lot of the themes he taught throughout his ministry, but it was all about this transition from now to next. And it emphasized beyond a shadow of a doubt how our earthly lives will absolutely affect our eternal lives. So, 
The last sermon Jesus ever preached, they didn't realize this, but looking back, it makes, it, pretty, it makes sense and it's pretty significant. The last parable Jesus ever told, it began like this. And the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property, his goods, his possessions, his stuff. It's like a master who had a bunch of servants. And he called all his servants together and said, listen, guys, I'm taking a trip out of town. I'll be back one day in a little while. But in the meantime, I'm going to give you my stuff. I'm entrusting it to you. I'm making you a steward of my stuff. To one he gave five talents, another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. But the story goes on. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. I said, hey guys, bring your bank statements, bring your books, bring all the records, bring all your receipts. It's time that we talk about what you did with what I gave you. And everyone kind of perked up in the audience like, what? Where are you, where are you going with this, Jesus? And to those who were faithful, to those who planned well, they received a very awesome welcome from the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That you think you, you think that your life is over. No, 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 no. It has just begun. And what you're about to step into is so much better than what you have been used to. But to those who are not faithful, to those who did not plan well, Cast the worthless servants into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth as in eternal and intense agony and sorrow. Now many people, many, and it's so easy to make this parable about heaven and hell. But that's not what the parable is about. And don't let anybody fool you. This is about children of God who either plan well or plan poorly in the now for what's next. And living forever in light of what and how they now, you probably already figured this out, but every time Jesus ever talked about planning for eternity, he always brought up stuff. He always brought up possessions. Come on. He always brought up money. That whole parable that we just referenced is about being entrusted with the master's goods and how we leverage those goods for the greater good, for God's glory. Now, here's the thing. Before you think this is going in a direction where it's all about, hey, what do I got to give up because this is all about costing me and helping someone else. Anytime and every time Jesus ever talked about money, anytime he ever talked about possessions and how we spend, how we use, how we leverage our stuff, our possessions, know this. Planning better. Always for Jesus meant spending better. And spending better to Jesus is always a pathway to saving and living better. Anytime that Jesus ever talked about how we plan and how we lead, lead with our finances, he always did so with the intention that you might would spend better. Don't you want to spend better? Save better. Who doesn't want to save better? And live better. And who doesn't want to live better? Now, most of the time you hear these sorts of sermons in church or attached to faith, it's, it's all about how to get more, right? We see these sermons and books and pamphlets, how to make more, how to get rich, how to somehow shake God's leg and enough to get him to bless us more. So we might have so much money we can't even build enough barns to hold it all. It's about what we can do to strong-arm God into making us rich. But you'll never hear that kind of sermon from me. And here's the secret. And the people that peddle those sorts of lies don't want you to know this. You'll never hear anything like that from this book. 
What we find from the scriptures is a reminder, however, that we are all blessed with provisions and with opportunity from God. And in our country, it almost goes without saying, doesn't it? When you add what God has given and opportunities he affords us, the reality for most of us, we're already rich. Compared to the rest of the world, compared to so many others in our own country, we are all so well off. And I know we're tempted to roll our eyes and scoff and make a joke or two about how that's not true. But the reality is the majority of us are all greatly and highly blessed and have been so very fortunate. And that's why Jesus never taught about how to get rich. He taught about how to be rich. As in how to manage what God has given you, what God has given us. Jesus taught that we could plan, that we could plan better and prepare better for eternity. By simply being a better manager, a better steward of what God has given us and what God has entrusted us with. And come on, don't you want to be a better manager, a better steward if you're handling stuff that doesn't belong to you? I mean, of course you do. Jesus talked a lot about money. So much about money, it almost surprises me that how much he talked about it. He talked about money in 16 of his 38 parables. That's pretty big, right? He talked about money and possessions. It's amazing that one out of every 10 verses in the Gospels reference or relate to or deal with money. One out of 10. So I can't ignore this as a pastor. You can't ignore this as a Christian. And I know, I know, I know what a lot of you are thinking. I can take care of my own finances, Justin. I don't need your two cents. I mean, unless you're giving me more than two cents, maybe. Sorry. That's a bad joke. Maybe your response to a preacher talking about money is shields up because, of course, all preachers care about is money. And I usually save this stuff for evening services, but couldn't avoid it. And yes, many in our profession have misused, many in my profession have misused and mishandled this subject. And that's not a preacher flaw, though. That's a people flaw. Which should alarm us and inform us all the more that we need to have this conversation because this is bigger than our finances. This is about our future. The end of all this isn't about making more or having more. It's about being more prepared for what's next. And that's why i got to talk about it. Jesus spoke in a society much like ours. Which they, didn't think, they didn't think about what was coming next. They were so overwhelmed by what was happening right now. Their goal was all about making money and having possessions for the sake of having them. They lost sight of eternity. Not intentionally, but as a byproduct of having a wrong understanding of their money, of their stuff. And if it happened to them, it can happen to us. And you know why? You know why all this breaks down? It all breaks down, honestly, because we, and I'm saying we because it might not mean you, but it does mean me. So it's we because there's a couple others that are in this group with me. We allow money and possessions to become the goal, not a means to God's end. You know why all this breaks apart and all this messes up in our blows up in our face? Because we Americans, we're so good at this. We allow money to become the goal, and a number to become the goal, and an amount of stuff to become the goal, and a certain object to become the goal, and we forget that it's meant to be a means to God's goal, God's end. If we fall, to, if we fail to see our finances as a pathway to a better future, our finances will get in the way of our future. You say, how can that happen? Because if money in our possessions becomes the goal, not the means, they will lay hold of us and we will lose hold of him. If we make it all about making more and having more, that stuff will have us. 
And we consequently will lose him. That's just the tension we live in. And I know, I know what you are saying. Well, this is just rich people problems, right? You know, rich people are tempted with this. Listen, all of us are tempted with the aspirations of making our goals the wrong objects. And you know why I know that you know this is true? Because we love singing about and talking about surrendering our hearts. We talk about surrendering our troubles, our relationships. We talk about surrendering everything to God. But when somebody asks us to surrender our money, we all of a sudden get a defense mechanism about us, don't we? When's the last time a worship song talked about surrendering our money? Nobody would buy it. Nobody would sing it. And we love surrendering our hearts and our souls and our, and our sorrows and our troubles and our husbands or our wives. Right? Hey, God, take them. We love surrendering. I'm not making a lot of that stuff. We love surrendering our children and our families and our problems. But when somebody says, hey, what about your money? We internally panic, don't we? We feel threatened. We feel our responses are almost hostile, aren't they? Right? Some of you right now are, I see it. And I know this. You know this because, because, because. Jesus made an example out of a guy. And thank God he didn't make an example out of us because he could have. And maybe he has before. But he made an example out of another guy before he made an example out of us. To prove this very truth. A young guy, he was in his 20s, he had already made more in a short while than most make in their lives. He already lost more money in the stock market than most will ever see. And this guy wasn't worldly, he wasn't sinful, he was a faithful religious follower. He was moral, he was decent, he was honest, he was obedient, he had given his heart to God, he surrendered his life, he entrusted his soul, he worshipped with all of his might and all of his strength. But for some reason, maybe God made him aware of this so that we could see this example. For some reason, he couldn't put his finger on it, he knew he was missing something. And he comes to Jesus one day and he said, Jesus... Please tell me, what am I missing? I, well, something's not right about my heart, and, I, and I've done everything you've ever told anybody to do. What do I got to do to lay hold on eternity, to enter into God's activity? Why is there this disconnect? Why, is, why do I feel like something's missing? And Jesus goes down the basic list. He says, have you prayed this prayer? Have you trusted God? Have you followed his word? And, of course, Jesus is just trying to draw this out of this guy. And the guy's like, I've done all that. I've done all that. I've done all that. I've done all that. I've surrendered in every area of my life. And Jesus is thinking, except one. The young man said to him, all these have I kept. All these commandments. All these commandments. I've done them. What do I still lack? Please, Jesus, tell me. And Jesus, without even batting an eye or out saying, without patting him on the back, saying, okay, buddy, it's okay. You're going to get through this. Maybe the most crass, the most blunt thing Jesus ever said to anybody. If you would be perfect or complete, go and sell what you possess. Give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Put this in our layman's language. Go and liquidate all of your estate. Give it all away. And come and be a homeless vagabond with me. And that guy's like, what did you just say? And everyone in the audience were just, oh, what? Jesus, this is the richest guy in the world or in our world, in our town. Do you not know what he could have financed? Do you not know what he could have helped us do? 
I mean, hey, Peter's like, Peter, Peter, Jesus, but there's enough poor people in our group. I mean, John and James are fighting over, I don't know if that's their pet or what. You know, we're all desperate for somebody's help, Jesus. Come on. And you just hacked off the one guy that can bankroll all of us. <coughs> the young man heard this. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know why we don't know that guy's name? Because he didn't sell everything. I mean, there's, there's no, I mean, if I was Jesus, I mean, I, I, you know, if I was writing the story a few verses later, I would say, just kidding, come on. I, I was tricking you. I was just seeing how emotional I could make the moment, you know, give a 10% check to the church and come on, follow me. But we don't know this guy's name. We might not ever know this guy's name. Because he couldn't count the cost. Isn't that wild? Could money be that powerful? Can it have that much of a grip on the soul of even a person who is so devoted? Could it really choke your connection to God entirely? Should our response, if we realize this, be as radical to what Jesus told this guy to do? And you know why this is very important? And there's a very important connection made that we'll come back to over and over again. That Jesus over and over again emphasized. Anytime Jesus ever talked about treasure in heaven, he was always connecting to something that we all can understand. Treasure in heaven to Jesus meant generosity on earth. And a Christian cannot live for, invest mostly, mostly in themselves. This is why Jesus is making it very clear. He's making this. He's not budging on this. If you're going to follow me, your investments cannot be mostly in anybody but me. Your investments cannot be mostly in yourself. You cannot live for yourselves or you'll have only yourself to show for yourself. If anyone could afford to follow Jesus or give up everything, it was this guy. He didn't want to. Under all the excuses, he just doesn't want to. And why? Because, because we all live on this edge of having money and money having us. We all live on this edge of having stuff and stuff having us. It's our nature. Anytime money becomes the end or stuff becomes the end, anytime we lose sight of eternity, we shift our allegiances all so subtly. And this guy comes from this business sector, from this professional world where money did all the talking. Money was everything. The more stuff, the more happiness, the, more, the bigger barns, the bigger egos, the bigger reputation, the bigger buying power. And, and wheelers and dealers often use the phrase, money talks. You can't take away my money. Money's why I've got a lot of money. It's what has got me here. But money can't talk, can it? Some of you might talk to it. I'd like to know how that goes. But it can't talk. But what if it could talk? And this is where Jesus comes into the picture and why Jesus' words to rich, the rich ruler are so provocative. Because Jesus knew something about money that nobody else did. And a few people seem to realize Jesus gave a voice to money as if to say, if money could talk, here's what it would say. Matthew 6, verse 19. And again, Jesus is saying this, but imagine if money was talking to you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Hey, person. That has me in their hand. Do not store me on earth. 
where moths can break in and er, rust and destroy, and thieves break in, or stock markets can crash. Hey, person, do not store me on earth, but rather lay me up for yourself as treasure in heaven, where moth or rust is not destroyed, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So if money could talk, money would say, stop storing me, stop investing me, stop putting all of me into this world and start sending me ahead as an investment to another world. I think money wouldn't say that. Money just said that. Jesus said that as if we're speaking for money. And verse 21 is the big, whew, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And money is saying, Psst, where are you putting me? Where you invest me? Where you spend me? You're telling on yourself that if people want to know where your heart is, they just need to look at where you put me. Whew. If that's true, we might be in trouble, but there's hope. Money has so much power over us. Money is saying, send me away or I might become too powerful for you to handle. Money makes our worlds go around. Money controls so many aspects of our lives. And it's almost as if we've made it our God's. We've given it all the power. It's like we've said, the wind blows and the tide rises and the sky is clear at the word of money. And rendering money so much power and so much authority, you know what's happened because we've done that? Three things have happened, and these are not mind-blowing things. These are probably going to make you just think, wow, why does he get paid to do this? You know what's happened in our giving money so much authority and so much power? We spend more and we save less. And we invest little to nothing in eternity. By making money our gods, by making money our entire foundation, by making money everything that we live our life and revolve our lives around, we start, we spend more, of course, right? We save less, well, no joke, right? But the big thing, we invest little to nothing in eternity. We just spend to no end. We, we're left with hardly nothing to spare, and the result is that we have nothing to leverage, and this is our energy, our resources in every category. We're so strung out. We just spend and spend and work and work and pour and pour with nothing in the tank. We don't have time to do anything for anybody but ourselves. And Jesus, giving money a voice, says something powerful to us here. Don't make me the end. Make me a means to a greater end. I can add meaning, but I cannot be the meaning. So what is Jesus reasoning for this commandment that he's just given us? Lay up means invest or send ahead. Listen, you're all investors. Just look at where you spend your money. We're all investing in something. The cardinal sin of a Christian is to assume that life is about us and growing our own kingdoms. Now that may come as kind of harsh, but remember why we are Christians in the first place. Why are you a Christian? Because you have decided that you cannot handle your eternal security. You need someone to save your soul, so don't you think we also need someone to help us manage our stuff? I mean, if we need God to save us from hell, right? If we can't handle ourselves when we die, why do we think we can handle ourselves while we live? So to walk away from the confession and go about living for ourselves is kind of hypocritical. So if money could talk, it would warn us that if we don't bring our finances under the grip of God, under the guidance of God, we will come under the grip of our finances. And Jesus is trying to tell us, money is trying to tell us, money cannot be a master, it must be a servant. But it will become a master. 
if we give it that kind of authority. Money. As with any possession that God entrusts us with, whatever he makes us stewards of, is meant to be a means to a greater kingdom-minded end. Money knows its place, but do we know ours? Now, as we wrap up, i got to make sure you lay down any sharp objects. I'm not worried about y'all harming me. Lay down any sharp objects. Buckle up. Because if we're being honest, verse 21 suggests something, something pretty convicting. Again, let's read it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That if you want to know where your heart is, look at where your treasure is. Or look at what you invest in the most. Look at what you spend the most on. Look at what you put the most stock in. So here's what Jesus is kind of saying. And again, don't throw anything at me. When we have trouble managing our money, it may reflect a character flaw, not an income deficit. We always say, well, it's just because I don't have enough of it. I just need more of it. And, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not actually what's going on. That when we have difficulty managing the money that God has given us, it might not be that we have an income deficit. It's that we have a management problem. We have a character flaw. Money is easy to keep up with, but it's hard to catch up with. Amen? And if we allow it to assume the role of leader rather than be a means of leverage, it suggests and reveals that our hearts have all sight of God. And here's the thing. Because y'all do this, I do this, we just swipe and we spend and we don't know where it's going. We often pay no attention to where our money is going, but our money always reveals where we're going. Right? Well, sometimes don't you, don't you think, well, I don't know where that money go. And you look at your bank and say, oh, that's where it went. Huh, where you're like me and you got cash, right? And you just spend the money. I don't know where it went. And I look, you go in your room and you turn the light on and you're like, well, it went somewhere in here. <laughs> or you, you know, whatever you, the stomachache that you have, right? It went somewhere. We often don't pay attention to where it's going, but you know what? Where we are going is determined by what we spend. And I say this all the time, and this might be, I don't know if this is something I should repeat or I don't know, but I'll say it again. If you want to know where your heart truly is, follow the money trail. I mean, if you want to know where your heart truly is, and I'm not, you know, I don't know where you're going through. I don't know where you're at in life, but this is just true, right? If you want to know where your heart truly is, just follow the money trail. And let me say this. If it's not already clear, this is not a sermon about give your money to church. It's not a sermon about give your money to me. It's not a sermon about give your money to God. God already owns it. If he wants it, he'll take it back. It's a sermon about your heart and the most dangerous poison that can potentially wreck every aspect of your life. It's a sermon about saving your finances and from controlling you and distracting you from God's kingdom and his plans for your life. And even if you think, well, I don't need your financial help, I'm doing just fine. This is about seizing control back from your money and back from your possessions. Let me say this as well. This is also about not falling victim to social media poison when you see what everybody else has and you start wondering, what do I got to do to get it? Where you feel inferior or superior based on what you have or what you can do with what you have. This is about seizing or retaking the reins of our life and putting money back in its place, back into God's hand. So what does laying treasures up in heaven look like? How do we fight against these awful investments that drag us down? Again, when Jesus says, store your treasure in heaven, he says, hey, you should start giving stuff away. 
but it's more specific than just throwing money out the door. Because I know some people that would say, hey, throw it to me. It's about directive, percentage, giving. And I know, I know, of course it's about that, right? But it's about predetermined, set aside, non-negotiable percentage, giving. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about this in 1 Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, that they are ready to do good, be rich in good works, be generous, and be ready to share. This is about making a decision before you ever get paid or before you ever think about what i got to do, what I need to do, what I make, what I've done, you know, better make sure I do. This is about being ready before anything and everything else. I am going to invest in God's work. I am going to serve in God's kingdom. I am going to do what God wants me to do before anything else comes my way because I know how important this is because I see the war going on in my heart. Paul says, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that we might make, take hold on that which is truly life. As in, we think we've got what, you, what is truly life, but we haven't even got it close to it yet. And Paul says, if you want to get close to it, you better start storing your treasure where it actually can make a difference. And again, again, y'all heard this, but I think it's worth repeating. The best way to, to rededicate your heart is to relocate your treasure. If you want to rededicate your heart, redirect, relocate your treasure. Our hearts will follow our investments. That's natural. And giving into God's kingdom will lead to supernatural joy. Now, here's the thing. I don't use the T word a lot. I don't talk about tithing a lot. I'll talk about this a lot. A couple times a year, right? I don't talk about tithing a lot. The tithing is an Old Testament idea that the Jews were uh, commanded. They were told that, hey, you owe God a percentage of your money, so you better give it to him or he'll get you. God owns 10, you own 90. Make sure you give God his 10 or he's going to stop the rain from coming and stop the crops from growing and your house might fall down. And the prophets scared the Jews to death where they always would do this. And when they didn't do this, trouble would happen. And when it comes to tithing, listen, I've been tithing all my life because I grew up in church and I heard that stuff and I was scared to death. But I'm glad. When I made $20 every Saturday as a kid, I knew $2 of that belonged to God. Didn't think about it. Didn't blink an eye. $2 every Sunday morning. When I got older and my paychecks were $200 a week, I knew that $20 of that went to God. And when I got older and my paychecks were $2,000 a month or whatever, I knew that $200 or whatever went to God before I ever spent it on me, God had to get His. And I am so thankful I was brought up that way. Because it saved my life and my finances. But I haven't stopped at 10 because I have, I have learned from Jesus. I don't tithe just because God owns 10. Because God doesn't just own 10. He owns 100. Amen. Right? Yes. And the idea that I give God 90 is mine to do whatever I want to with it, that's a lie. We aren't free to do anything with anything. Because we are not our masters. If we have that attitude, we will be mastered by stuff. Listen, my whole thing about percentage giving, it's not to make us feel guilty. It's about our responsibility. This isn't just about cutting God a tenth and returning our merry way. This is about seeing all a hundred as a means of honoring and serving and obeying God. Planning for eternity is not just about 10%. It's about being purposeful with all a hundred percent. That means what you keep and what you do with it. Because look at what Jesus says in verse 24. 
No one, as in not you, not me, not nobody, not Bill Gates, not rich man over here, rich woman over there. No one, no one, no one. What does it say? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the others, or else he will be loyal to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God. King James, mammon, which is just a combination word in Old English that means money and stuff. Money and stuff that's worth money. Money and stuff that you bought with your money. So mammon, money, possessions, whatever you want to call it, treasure. I thought it was a woolly mammoth. That's, that would be better, right? Mammon means money, stuff, anything. You cannot serve both. It's not possible. If you view your money as yours, you might throw God a bone every once in a while. This verse flies in the face of that kind of living because this sort of lifestyle has made money our master. And money can't be our master as well as while we serve God because money will take control of everything and leave God the scraps. You know what is really odd? Jesus posits God against money. I mean, if you didn't know that was going to say, man, then wouldn't you expect it to say Satan or sin or hell or evil? What does that tell you about your money, about your treasure, about your possessions? Your God's biggest competition in war for your soul is your stuff. Here's the thing. In Jesus' audience, there was a hand-to-mouth society. They had what they had. And we, in a lot of ways, are a paycheck-to-paycheck society. Of course, after this, hands went up everywhere and people began thinking, Jesus, you've got this wrong. Money isn't my master, but it's just how things are. You can't actually make us feel bad for just operating in a world that we're stuck in. Actually, Jesus is trying to change our world. He's trying to bring the kingdom and flip things on its head. He's trying to break the chains that money has on us. And truly and honestly, all his excuses, those defense mechanisms, they usually come out like, Jesus... If this is some backdoor way of trying to get me to give money to your movement, I can't afford to do that. Because I've got so much other stuff going on. And Jesus knew he would say that. He knew it. He knew it. He knew it. Jesus is telling us to reformat our entire budget and put God on top. And our response is always the same. I can't afford to do that. And he knows your heart. He sees your hands raised up. He sees the real anxiety that comes from worrying about money. So then Jesus says in verse 25, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. You know why he said that? Because they were worried. He just told them to give up everything they had. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more? Look up here. Isn't life more? And they're like, they're thinking, well, yeah. Yeah. And he goes on to tell them, look at the birds. And that doesn't make them feel better. And he says, oh, you of little faith, don't worry. That's what non-believers do. So he puts out that fire and he says, no, my people don't fall for that kind of excuse. And maybe you're thinking, Jesus, are you saying, are you saying that my I can't afford to comes from being ruled by the wrong master? And the only way to combat it, the only way to be safe from it is to give, to give, to give, to give, to give. Listen, and this is saved, this has changed my life. Generosity will make us less anxious because it wires our souls to a secure eternity. Anxiety is our heart leaking joy. 
You know why we worry? Because it's our heart leaking the joy that God wanted to put in us. And generosity is our heart overflowing with joy, stopping that drift. You can combat anxiety, uncertainty, and fear by choosing to see your stuff as a means, not as the end. If your stuff, if your money, if your possessions are yours to protect and retain and defend, then you can kiss your joy goodbye. But if your stuff and your money and your possessions are yours to protect and retain and are yours to give and share and invest, then you can have as much joy as you can give away. Jesus closes this sermon out in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that you worry about, all the reasons why you say, I can't, I can't, I can't. Seek first the kingdom of God and his way, his righteousness, his standards, and all these things will be added unto you. You know why? I, I don't plan to, but you know why I think that God leads us into this a couple times a year? To hold me accountable. To make it clear to us what matters most. God's kingdom, God's people, and God's work. To make it clear to us that if we want to rededicate and redirect our hearts, we must adopt a seek-first habit with our finances. The kingdom where others are greater than ourselves. Where sacrifice and generosity equals gain, not loss. The disciples thought Jesus would be like every other king. Selfish. They wanted to be selfish all the way with him. Yet Jesus continually set an example that that was not his mission. His disciples were constantly nagging at him about who was going to be the greatest in his kingdom. And one occasion Jesus said, you know how in the kingdoms of the world, it's all about conquering and taking. And they said, yeah. And he said, that's not how we're going to do it. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. And after this, Jesus went on to model for them his sacrifice. He washed their feet at the Lord's Supper. He got on the cross and died a servant's death, seeking a kingdom first, with a kingdom first attitude, with an other's first heart. And all of this was part of the plan so that we could have a better plan. And the Bible tells me and you that we, in Philippians 2, would each of you look not only on his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to talk about what Jesus did when he died. Putting others first. Yes, he was exalted, but he was not thrilled about the throne. He was thrilled about us getting to know his father. He said, Justin, that's so odd. That's so strange. It's so generous. Exactly. And generosity equals gain and joy. It equals eternity. And this, this is what you were made for. You were created. We were created to seek our creator first. Seeking him first will always lead to our best. We're at our best when we're most generous. Because that's when we're most like Christ. When we send forward, we add security to our present. Anxiety will cower when generosity towers. So here's what we've got to decide on. Seek first living begins with giving. And not just giving monetarily, but giving through our service, giving through our love. Investing in the kingdom is a layup away when we prioritize giving and serving and loving each day. Leverage your life for somebody besides you. Be meaningful. Don't you want to be meaningful? How do we get the maximum amount of use out of the limited amount of time and opportunity that we've been given? 
We should get up every day knowing that today is meant to be meaningful towards eternity. And as we put our hands on that grimy stuff, as we think about what we have, ask ourselves, what is more valuable? Stuff or the stories that you can tell when you help someone? Taking or giving? Making or impacting? You know, Jesus made a very weird statement one time. He said in Luke 16, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth or of worldly money. So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. You know what he's saying? If you think as a Christian you aren't to use your stuff to impact people and make relationships that will last forever. If you think in heaven there's just going to be this wonderful time of forgetting the kind of person that you were, greedy and selfish. If you think that's how this works. I hope you might think again before it's too late. We ought to seek the kingdom every day and know that today is about preparing and planning for our eventual eternal home. Because as he said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. So who's your master? You've got one of two. If you're mastered by money, life is all about taking and spending and losing in exchange for grief. But when God is your master, Life is all about giving and serving and loving in exchange for joy. So decide today. Put money in its place. Into God's hands. Under His guidance. Don't wing it. Plan it. Plan it. Because you can do better. Because you know better. Let me pray for you. Father, obviously this is a tense subject for us to talk about. But Jesus talked about it a lot. So we can't avoid it. We can't ignore it. Father, as we think about what has its hold on us, what controls us, what's, what masters us, or some of us, all we do is worry about money. We worry about stuff. We worry about what we have, what we don't have, what we want to have, what we need. Father, that tells us that we've allowed some things to get its hooks in us that you never intended to be masters, you always meant them to be servants. Father, Jesus made it very clear there are two masters that will fall under. God or stuff. God or money. God or possessions. Father, if somebody would be so bold and so brave to admit that they have put something besides you in your place, that they have put stuff, money, in control, and all they do is take and spend and lose. Father, maybe they want to come to you and they want to make a public declaration that they want to get this off their back. They want to put you first. They want to seek you first. They want to seek others first. And they know that they're at their best when they're most generous. Father, for the rest of us, Lord, it's a struggle. The world is always pulling at us. But may, may you open our eyes to what is the most important, the most valuable, the most vital way to live. God, maybe somebody would be, uh, be willing to confess they're like that rich young ruler and they've never came to God because they've been holding on to stuff and they've been holding on to things that they thought they would have to let go of to get to Him. And the truth is they might have to let go of that stuff, but they're ready to do it right now because they know whatever it costs, whatever it takes, wherever it leads, you are more important. 
So, Father, we give you this invitation. We hear this song that reminds us that Jesus is greater and better. So we'd rather have him. We ask this in Jesus' name.